This is the Game Theory Podcast, Episode 2, Suspension of Disbelief, recorded with Brian Fife, Jim Fingal, and Tom Westberg. Hello. Some friends had the insatiable craving to watch Jurassic Park last night. It was surprisingly not available on very many sites, and it wasn't available to stream for free anywhere. The only places where we could find it were on iTunes and Vudu, and in both places you had to buy the whole trilogy. So we ended up paying $50 for the HD trilogy of the Jurassic Park movies. So if, if any of you guys are interested in watching The Lost World or Jurassic Park 3 sometime in the next year or so. I have it on Voodoo. That's awesome. I haven't seen either one, and I'm not that interested. <laughs> so that sort of thing pretty much wouldn't work with games, would it? While people are still interested in watching Casablanca or Jaws and might get conned into paying lots of extra money because of, of a craving and because it's been really limited... I can't think of that happening with any any sort of old games. I, I think the desire is there, but the pain threshold is probably much lower. Well, to, to bring us back into the world of first-person shooters, as I always do, they did remaster Halo, basically exactly the first game, but updated technology. Half-Life so, Source, they, they released the game with uh, an updated graphics engine and new skins. Yes, although they didn't charge lots of extra money for it. They also did Shadow of the Colossus, as we talked about last week. We released that in, in HD form. But even that wasn't a $60 game o- over again. Well, I would just say that Pac-Man, you know, it's still... They sold a lot of Pac-Man. Pac-Man on cell phones, Pac-Man on the DS, Pac-Man, the flamethrower, whatever you want. But yeah, they weren't getting sixty bucks for it. You know, they were getting two bucks or five bucks, right? Like, yeah, they get get it in in volume. <laughs> How many versions of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, have you purchased in your lifetime? That's true, but that tended to be because of, of media changes. You having construction in your house again, Tom? That would be a puppy pushing a bone across the floor. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we can start with, uh, what are you playing right now? Unfortunately, I'm playing Fear 3 because I I finished uh, The Darkness 2, which had a pretty weak ending, but was, was fun playing it. Uh, Fear 3 is bizarre in that it decided the third game was a time to integrate in RPG elements and achievement counter for almost anything that you do in the game. Like whether or not you you kill someone with like a particular gun, it counts for like for the particular level that you're playing. And and you know if you kill twenty people with a shotgun you get a certain number of experience points for that level. I hate myself for for switching guns so that I will get those awards. Well, that that's that's like you know why I I think in the in the proper hands incentives like that can actually teach you how to play the game better or can encourage you to learn new techniques. But in sinister hands, they just grab you by the nose and drag you through parts of a game you don't really want to spend time in. The the game is actually pretty. I guess there's a bullet time mode, uh, which is not particularly new or fantastically innovative, but is fun. But other than that, 
you you basically fight the same guys over and over again. So it's almost like throwing you a bone to to give you something that is supplements the mostly uninteresting rest of the game. Now, was it one of the, one of the selling points of the early Fear games that it had more advanced AI than some of its competitors? I'm not sure what the state of the art is now. Since I don't play any of the modern warfare, you know, war war type games in which it's not extremely obvious who the the people you're supposed to kill are. I think that's like the dividing line between the the first person shooters that I play and I don't play. <laughs> but I imagine those have probably developed the squad based AI more. I think that was a big selling point of the original Fear games perhaps stuck in a rut with, with Game 3. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw that in Half-Life where you, know, you hid behind a bunker and they just they just lobbed a grenade at you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not convinced we actually want good AI. In, in some ways, it's fun to be able to understand how the stupid computer is going to react and that's the game you're playing. I hear what you're saying. Like nobody wants in WoW to really play the scenario, or at least to say it's a radically different game. It's a radically different game if in WoW you kill one goblin and then he runs back and the whole castle like locks down <laughs> because there's an invader. Right. And although there are often battles like that that are specifically set up, and you you must kill him before he gets out and things like that. But aside from that, they, they tend to be all scripted. Well, it's just like a bunch of deer and or crocodiles and or whatever, like sprinkled pseudo-randomly across the map. Yeah, with basic seeking and uh, behaviors that, where they respond to each other. And what, a good day, yeah. <laughs> what always gets to me is the the games that where the, the enemies are just extremely vocal, so you can you basically can always hear what they're thinking, so that it reminds you that that they're there. You're talking about Bioshock now. I do remember them muttering muttering to themselves in in Bioshock, but the the people yelling at each other, I can't find him. Yeah, <laughs> they're basically just like verbalizing their their like game state of whether or not they're seeking or whether or not they found you. Maybe if I played the games on a higher difficulty level, it, it would be. I don't know if the AI would be would be better, or if if it would just be the formulas would be more against I've against got, me. I've never seen a game where the AI got more clever as the difficulty went up. It always seems to they just cheat more. Yeah, <laughs> or cheat, or just yeah, better better shooting or higher hit points. Whatever it is, I, it, the marketing people will tell you it's a better AI, but it, that's not provable. Well, it's too it's too expensive to not use that even on the basic level just to make a more interesting game. I mean, they may disable certain techniques like in Civilizations, where you know they won't build a fortress for defense if it's not hard or something. I suppose. Well, games like Civilization, which on on some level is is almost chess-like. In terms of trying to set set things up, that that's much more amenable to if we knew how to do it, having a, a, a decent AI, and and those tend to be even more obvious when they simply beat you by 
having more resources on their side or that that sort of thing. Did Did you read when uh, they Big Huge did Catan? They spoke with the developer of the game, and he said, "Oh, I just happen to have all these spreadsheets that kind of map out what an AI would do. Do you want them?" <laughs> wow. Yeah, the I, I I feel like there is in in shooter games there's there's sort of like a limited number of things. When I think of advanced AI, that would be desirable in a game. You know, what you want to be is surprised and, you know, maybe a little bit delighted by their behavior. But at a certain point, you'll settle for, like, good pathfinding or <laughs> or just that when you see them, they can also see you. How about or, they don't get it stuck in a crack between two rocks and vibrate <laughs> back and forth? You, you yeah. guys don't need to, you know, go over your horror stories. I think but we, what you're talking about are the velociraptors from Jurassic Park, right, Jim? Yeah, well, you see one in front of you, and you know you you think that you're all set, and then they come at you from from both sides. Clever girl, Tom. What are you playing? I did play uh, ten or fifteen minutes of Diablo three yesterday. A friend got me into the whimsy land, which is Diablo three's version of the cow level. So I got to see that, which was very cute. Oh, nice. What does that consist of? Essentially, uh, think of a bright color uh, Mario-like world filled with happy clouds spanned with rainbows with dancing unicorns which attack you and little teddy bears which attack you and flowers which attack you. And when you kill them, they leave huge pools of blood. And uh, th- it's pretty much uh, endless. Uh, th- th- that that would pre- be basically Whimsyland. It's it is uh, amusing enough. You get there by speaking to a ghost of a, a cow, who explains to you that there is no cow level, but he can let you. <laughs> uh, but you can only do it by having put together lots and lots of pieces to a magic component, which my friend had done. Uh, in order to to earn your way in, uh, and by by putting together, you mean purchased on the auction house, or found? I'm not sure. I think he actually did most uh, mostly searching. Although this friend finally deleted Diablo three last night because he was so frustrated uh, with the Inferno level and just decided it was not fun. Of course, my experience with that meant that because he took me forward with my Poor little level nine wizard, which was quickly getting killed by flowers and teddy bears. Basically, they would hit me once and I would fall over dead and everybody else broke out laughing. But because he did that, it screwed up my quest progress for that character. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to get back to it, it back on track. There are certain aspects of the game that don't seem very well thought out. It, it, it One of the things that continues to amaze me is however many years we are after the release of WoW, nobody's attempted to tackle the issue of quest synchronization. So what, what do you mean by that? It happens in Borderlands, right? Or any other game where somebody's on phase two of the quest and then somebody else is on phase one and you're like, let's get online and play. You, you're not aware of, or you miss the fact that you're both out of sync, and so like you never come back together. You're you're doing multiplayer, but only one person is actually benefiting or progressing, and the other person is resigning themselves to redo that 
quest sequence again. Yeah. Which is a big drag. I, I have it on good authority. You also played some Dungeon Defenders uh, last week. Well, that was last week. Yes. Since we you, talked. you talk about that unless you talked to unless you did something else. I did other wonderful things. Really? Oh, yes. See, I know you're 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 sarcastic about Dungeon Defenders, but I I think it's a pretty fun game. I showed a guy. Uh, Iron Battalion. What's the what's the double fine game? I'm not sure. Iron Brigade, the game Iron Brigade, which is uh, yet another tower defense variant, sort of like with zombies. It's like you better have something pretty good if you want to get my attention now. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so what is Dungeon Defenders? It looks like there are lots of bright colors. Tom? Uh, think of a game that has a tower defense-like aspect of it. Different character classes can build different types of defensive or offensive devices. Enemies are going to be marching in and attacking you and the, all the defensive points and so forth on their way towards destroying the, the sacred crystal in the middle that you've got to defend. So you're doing that, and you're also just playing a plain old first-person-y shooter-like game, except it's not really first-person, it's third, I guess. And... As the bad guys die, they leave behind little crystals that are currency you use to build more or upgrade your uh, defensive towers. So you either tend your towers or you clobber mobs. Or you do both. Yes. That sounds exhausting. Exactly. And the way that the character level progression, like there's... Who knows, 40, 60, some huge number of levels. You get random drops. Every item can also be leveled with the right investment of money, so you can level every piece of gear you have. You're kind of pressured into either choosing a run around and smash things build or a beat my tower up build because the middle is never really a good place when you're playing with a bunch of people. Yes, otherwise you wouldn't want to have somebody who hadn't completely maxed out on tower building to build the towers. Uh, you, if there are going to be two people who are good at a particular type of tower, you're, you're going to choose the one who's maxed, maxed out in that. Partially because like every level has a tower cap that as you start playing, seriously, you exhaust it pretty quickly. So it becomes a strategic thing of which towers do I want to place, not how many towers can I place. Yes, I haven't ever noticed a level in which you uh, want to start with one set of towers, and then after you've got enough money, tear those down and put up a different set because the game style changes. I've played, played noticed that in other sorts of tower defense games. Well, there are two things that are frustrating to me about the game. The first is that it, well, it looks like a more casually-ish multiplayer game, but all the elements of character maintenance are burdensome. And the second is that they have this weird camera where it just never seems to be right. I mean, Tom, you're with me on this. Oh, absolutely. The camera control is just incompetent. That's the best I can say about it. I don't think it's a deliberate gameplay choice to uh, add some subtle level of difficulty. The other part of it, though, is I, I, I call hypocrite on you. That seems to me the, the exact sort of thing in min-maxing that you revel at. Uh, in, in, in games. But I, I said it, it purports to be a casual multiplayer. 
and it, it's not that for me. That's what I want. Something um, something that's a little less. I mean, again, this is uh, just kind of putting on a thick frosting of MMORPG elements to speaks the dimension to a game. The Warhammer 40k. When am I going to figure out which build pattern I do? Kind of player. But that's that's a that's a gloves off game. I mean, I, I know that I'm making a serious investment if I'm going into that. But when it sort of seeps into every game I play, I get tired of that. Um, mostly, it's a camera. Um, in a game where you're you're trying to do precision placement of towers, there's no way to get a, an accurate top-down view. You're sort of always like craning your neck to try to see something that isn't visible in the camera, and that's just, as Thomas said, doesn't seem right. I'm used to playing games where where I control the camera. I seem to have remembered playing some games where the camera was was controlled for me for dramatic effect. Well, I can't remember it ever being really good <laughs> 100% of the time. Can you think of successes in, I guess, like fixed cameras where it really added to the game? Where it's like you're, you're moving around and, and as you, you cross some threshold and the camera is suddenly from another angle? It's always been frustrating to me. I, I generally prefer being able to override it and al- allow it to swing back behind me. I should always be able to, to move it. In this case, you can't move it around relative to yourself, although you can obviously just change the way you're facing. But the, the bad part about it is you use your mouse wheel to zoom in and out, and there are essentially positions that it moves to that are completely worthless. Jim, I, I think one of the, thinking of an answer to your question, I'm thinking of certain adventure games where the camera was always fixed, and as you move into a different position in the room, the view would shift. And I don't remember it always being terrible. Well, so I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking more if, of, of 3D games. Maybe you are too. Quick Googling for a fixed camera calls out that, so like Resident Evil... Metal Gear Solid and a bunch of the God of War games did this. I seem to... I extremely dislike all the Resident Evil games, particularly because of how awkward the controls are. And it's it's one of those things where perhaps it was on purpose to have difficult controls that aren't like any other game's controls, and and that's a built-in way to have the game be more difficult and sort of scary that you have to choose to either move or shoot, but you can't do both at the same time, but I, I find that distasteful. The God of War games, though, were pretty much going for a cinematic look, so I can... Yeah. I, I'd forgotten that they did that, and it really wasn't bad, the, the way it worked. Yeah, and I think that, that that's, even, that's sort of maybe more like the adventure style of things where... Well, I guess... I'll take that back because in, in like an adventure game like I mean I'm thinking like King's Quest V or something like you really part of the game is being able to like see and notice things whereas in God of War you're pretty much in control the whole time and the most important thing is just where the enemies are <laughs> and well you're you're in control only to the point that you're on rails moving from battle platform to battle platform. Yeah, that's so, why it works, because they know when the battle is going to be sprung on you, and th- so the camera is going to be set up uh, such that it works well there. 
yeah, I, I, by in control, I didn't, I didn't mean in control of the, uh, the experience. I, I meant because of the, the, those like aspects of the game, the fighting aspects of the game and the go from place to place are fixed. It's like there are, there are less like surprises that you have to deal with, with things that you need to notice or particularly, I guess, things that you have to be nimble to, to catch. So that may be one of the aspects why it, it's okay that the camera's not in your control. <laughs> as in control as in the act, Brian's favorite game for the weekend? <laughs> well, that was, you know, instead of talking about the act, we could talk about... Oh, sure, retreat. No, what's the one with the uh, dragon, dragon player? Yes, that's exactly what I wrote down about it. The act, Dragon's Lair with an analog joystick. Dragon's Lair was expensive to play. Right? <laughs> it was that, that, that yeah, it was a that was a laser disc game, right, Tom? Yes, it was. The interesting thing is, in the act, although the animation's great and and it it generally works well, there are points in which it jumps as if it were an, a laser disc jumping from scene to scene. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of that is. I, I guess it's just intrinsic to the the type of game. It seemed to stutter more than it should have. But, you know, hey, a buck, right? I don't object to the, the price. I, ultimately, uh, it wasn't all that much fun uh, for me, just not that much of a sense of really uh, being in control in any interesting way. I understand. There weren't achievements either. You didn't get Xbox points. There, there's sort of a lot of downsides. I do look for that. Uh <laughs> Did you you didn't you don't read the No High Scores blog, do you? I do. I did, but, uh, did you, not lately. Did you follow the whole progression of the guy to a hundred thousand Xbox points? That's a lot, right, Jim? That's a lot, yeah. So he talked about like, you know, there are all these websites that will tell you like play this kid's game to get the most points in the shortest period of time and that sort of thing. So he was playing, you know, My Little Pony or whatever it was, just to get oh my. just to get fistfuls of achievement points. And then and you don't course, have to finish Microsoft's the whole game. Microsoft's laughing all the way to the bank because you're buying these, all these stupid games uh, and then throwing them away just to get the points. Well, and I, I'm sympathetic to the author because I think uh, you know he was just close and he's like, hey, I can do this. And then it sort of becomes its own thing. So Tribes Ascend, that's what I've been playing. So I, I, I feel like I've, I've seen that. It's, it's called Tribes Ascend. It's a, it's a free-to-play a variant of the tribe uh, lineage of games. Tribes much loved, and a lot of the elements are still there from the old games, which is cool. They have this concept they call skiing, where when you're on a slight downhill, you hit a button and you start coasting and picking up speed, and then you, everybody has a jetpack. And so the action is never on the ground. People that are on the ground die. Uh, so it's a combination of jetpack, joyride, and journey. I can understand why it's appealing. Oh, look at you. It's um, it's just people flying through the air and taking pot shots at each other and a whole number of classes, and it's done relatively well for a free-to-play. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures on Steam. The, the aesthetics look very Halo-like. There's nothing cutting edge about it, but it's certainly everything's tolerable, and you can get in the game and you know account for yourself acceptably, even though there's a lot that you just have no idea what's going on. I did really, really like Tribes back in the day. I didn't play a lot of it, but I liked it. Take a break here. Jimmy, it sounds like you kind of had a low-key weekend. 
Tom, probably the same for you. It was a holiday weekend this last week, and I, I celebrated the same way that four out of five pirate captains do uh, with grog. Uh, grog is everybody's drink of choice. It's, it's good for any event. It has all the, the best ingredients that everybody needs, uh, kerosene, artificial sweeteners, sulfuric acid, red dye number two. Is this the Monkey Island brand? Absolutely. Grog is not only a refreshing beverage, it can also be used to power small internal combustion engines or light a lamp, powers out. You can use it to unstick rusty hinges or uh, resuscitate people that are in comas. It's very versatile, um, as well as you know being fun at parties and, and really really good for everybody. So you know, next time you're having a party, check out Grog. They're running a special now with Grog. You get the little booklet when you buy the bottle. Um, they have a couple different recipes for grogatinis and grogachinos, all kinds of other fancy drinks that you can enjoy. Kind of a different way to experience it. And uh, you know, for the young ones, don't forget there's near grog. It is uh, slightly less toxic and great for kids. I'm always surprised how much grog tastes like ice wine. Yeah, you know, I I, I never would have drawn the line with uh, kind of uh, the Arctic regions myself, but there is a sort of a a connection that you can't ignore. That may be just be the kind of like the toxic shock reaction that I have when I'm drinking it. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah, that could be that. So, do you want to talk about um, game types? Is that something that's interesting for us? I think so. I mean, I think we we often end up touching on this idea of there being these these. If, if not fundamental, different game types, different motivations for for playing games, and and perhaps there being value judgments associated with that. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting that Tom sort of had an intrinsic reaction against Dragon's Lair slash the Act. He also had a uh, very biased and unreasonable negative reaction against NetHack when we spoke previously about it, and so you know clearly he has something in his mind of what a game is that is reprehensible to the rest of us. No, no, no. I actually think those are both very interesting examples, minimalistic in the case of NetHack, and very highly produced in the case of the app, of, of games of their type. I'm not really sure how to characterize the act, where NetHack is at, at least a, a dungeon crawler. Ultimately, Playing a game is going to come down to having fun, I hope. And I think the way you're, you're supposed to have fun with the act is laugh at the character's awkward situations and uh, work hard at, at trying to pull him through them. And I may have issues with that because too many of the situations ended up I, let's just say I'm the sort of person who never cared for cares for sitcoms in which the main character is immensely stupid, such as the Lucy Show, and I'm embarrassed for the main character. So I always had trouble with Lucy Show re- reruns when she would do idiotic things and then break down and cry about it. And that, that this guy felt the same way. One thing that I believe is true, although I'm not sure is I don't think there's any replay value to the game. 
it's not clear to me. I, I did I played through the whole thing, and it's like you did this in so many takes, but it's it's not clear to me that the game ends differently if you play it air quotes better. I think the point is to see the story, and there is some very nice animation. I mean, there's some very very skilled animators that did this story, right? Yes. It's basically a way of prolonging a cartoon because there's no there, there are no forks. You know, I guess the other the other thing we could talk about is sort of a choose your own adventure novel that were made into a game. It's it's still the same kind of you're telling a story and there's sort of a sensation of control, but it's either irrelevant to the rest of the game. I'm gonna just invoke a uh, outrageous example of Metal Gear, where like you're doing something and then you watch a two-hour movie and then you do something else and you watch a two-hour movie or however the hell the <laughs> game works. Um, or like you play, you know, what's that game with the girlfriend or whatever it is, and like it's a puzzle game, but then there's this big story about like women and men and life and all that other stuff. You know, the story is sort of... Is it Catherine or yeah, something Catherine, like that? Yeah, I think it is. Interesting and yet unrelated to the game, maybe. But the point is to see a story. I think it's pretty easy to sort of say, okay, there are games that are like that, and yeah, they're different from other types of games, right? I barely think those are games. And that's okay. I, I, the yeah, Metal that's Gear okay. Solid, certainly I do think those are... There is real gameplay in between the movies and similarly uh, the Final Fantasy games but in in many of these it is more an example of uh, an excuse to to show our cool animation well, yeah part, part of the I guess if we're talking about the different types of games I mean we can touch on the you know what what makes a, a game a game and how that like those like particular like game specific features differ amongst the different styles. Being interactive is certainly one of those the the primary features. If it's not interactive, then you have a hard time calling it a game. But there, the the control you use has a great deal to do with how you think of it as interactive, and that's a an aspect of the act or dragon's lair, which is something that feels incredibly limiting. The notion that all I can do is swing my finger left or right, and that is the link, the extent of my interaction, is something that really feels constraining and drives home the limited nature of of how much you have to do with what what the game is. Whereas Interacting in a Elder Scrolls-like game, something like Skyrim, in which you really could fairly realistically role-play it and think of yourself as being a crusader on one side or another, moving through the world and interacting with characters because they will keep track of what you've done and, and react somewhat accordingly. You can, you can maintain that illusion pretty easily, as opposed to, depending on how far I slide my finger, it does something extra, extreme one direction or another that's kind of funny. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's another sort of axis that you can chart, which is, in addition to the interactivity, how much real impact do you have on what, like, happens in the game? Yeah, how much does the... Uh, 
the world of the game or I guess the story or the outcome change based on what what you're doing because I I think we probably all played games that have the sort of the the maddening trope of you you do a lot to to gather a bunch of resources and you know you save up all of your potions uh, and then you get to a point in the game where there's just a reset and you know starting at that point you could have done anything it's it just like doesn't persist things that, that you've done before yeah, to me you're, the, you're thrown into jail and you have to escape and you basically have an inventory flush or something like that it reinforces the the fact that there are these choke points in the game where whatever you've done up until that point is sort of like arbitrary beside the fact that you got to that point if that makes sense I think I, I keep thinking of Drake's Fortune 3 on uh, the PlayStation, which was a generally pretty well-regarded game, but something that most critics reacted to was the fact that there were so many quick-time events in the game. And unlike a game like Mario 64, right, where we all played that and we just reveled in the ability to do amazing tricks and flips and jump anywhere in the world, right? You could really juke and pop and show off all the tricks like that that happen in the game or when you don't have control of the character that i i do remember that sort of thing and that was actually one of the things that i really enjoyed about assassin's creed was how acrobatic my character actually was when i played it they actually uh pulled off that feeling of, of your character doing climbing and, and leaping in interesting ways and not being a total klutz and doing it, it held together for me. Well, and it's, yeah, like Mirror's Edge, right? Looking at something and going, well, yeah, I can get there. I bet I can get there, as opposed to having an invisible wall that won't let you. To take this back a step, thinking about how to taxonomize or how to... Certainly there are gameplay elements that you would say kind of could fit as tags, right? Like certain achievements or the fact that it has zombies or whatever it would be if you're trying to classify games. It has the tower defense element. That may not be a genre. It may be a attribute or something. I think there are interesting different things you might pull out of a game. And, and one of them is getting into the world, world building or role playing. You had mentioned strategery in your email earlier, and uh, because I have to say something sarcastic to myself about anything you've written, I, I summarize it as risk without the tribal motivations, because it is a conquest world conquest game, but it doesn't actually let you be motivated by thinking you are taking over North America or any anything that. Uh, has an analog in real life, or even particularly look like you're taking over anything in real life, it, it stays a much more abstract game. And, and so there are plenty of games that try to clearly motivate you that this is not just pixels and numbers in a spreadsheet. This is about people. This is about pain uh, so, somebody has, is, is going through angst and the story is part of it and you, the artwork is part of it and you're motivated by how dark the look is. And all of those things actually come together to at least make a stab at the art of, of a video game. And by the same token, you can have uh, 
Tetris is my favorite example of a, of a video game in which it is fully abstract. I can't really come up with a real-world analog to those pieces and why they would be falling down and why, when you get them all the way across, they would blink and move away and more things would fall and so forth. That's fine. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't expect it to have anything that I can map to in my experience. It's still a fun game to play. On one extreme, we have a game that is nothing but a story. And on the other extreme, we have a game that, if it were well crafted, Tetris, you could play it forever, right? And it wouldn't really matter what the platform was. It wouldn't really matter what the system. Better graphics doesn't make that much of a difference. It is just a good game that you can kill time with. Right. Somebody will do Tetris with particle effects like Geometry Wars someday, but yes. Yeah, but who cares? The Helvetica clock of Tetris. That's if I'm going to Google. There are games that have a narrative arc but also have a gameplay element like Assassin's Creed, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems like one of the questions from the outset is, are there these like definable types of games? And I think that if you, you sort of like ask the question of, of any other media, the answer always ends up being there, there are sort of like different continuums that, that combine together in different ways and sort of historically or aesthetically, we, you know, find affinities between them and sort of draw, draw circles around them where, you know, Tetris is, is like an, a, an abstract game. And there are many games like that, that, that fall into that category. But one of the things that I find interesting about games is actually um, the sorts of games that try to locate themselves like in between those definable areas, either trying to combine the, all the different aspects in, in, in a, a new or totalizing way or, or just sort of like mashing up things together in unexpected and uh, interesting ways. Like swords and sorcery? Yeah, I don't, the that that I'm actually playing that as it suggests where I'll play one level and then I'll set it down for for a while. <laughs> but but that has a, the nice sort of adventure feel. Uh, have you have you guys played Sword and Sorcery? Yeah, a little bit. I've played it's some awesome. of it and I really enjoy the overall game aesthetic. The, the the minimalistic art that manages to actually be quite a bit more than it seems when you you first start off thinking oh this this looks very eight bit pixelish and start realizing that they're they're doing things with grayscales and so forth which are are uh, pretty interesting and subtle and technically wouldn't have actually been reasonably possible with something like a Nintendo. Uh, or, or, of course, they're, they're using the little blocks as pixels and moving them in sub-pixel locations and, and so forth. So the, the, the pixels themselves are, are, in that respect, fake. And I, I, I like so many uh, aspects of it, the, the way it, it pulls itself together. That said, I haven't finished it. But. Well, we, we were talking about this over the weekend, right, Tom? Games like the ones that Pixel Junk does where... Like an old 8-bit game, but they use voxels, or there's very yes. advanced particle physics and stuff that are at play. So, well, it may look like the waterfall, like the waterfall on a 
Atari or Nintendo was a sprite that was cycling through, and this actually has drops of water that are falling and have gravity and interact and all that stuff. Yes. It's, it's really neat to watch modern game designers go retro in, in ways that uh, I think many of the players won't necessarily know how much technology they're using. On the other hand, much like our expectations for a graphical user interface on a desktop computer or handheld computer keep moving forward when, when you actually try to interact with an old-style Mac or basically a rectangular control device, you, you start realizing how much you take for granted in the way the, the visual textures are blended together and, and, and how the animations move as and change to, to highlight things as you move the mouse over them and, and that sort of thing. All these things that are, are fairly subtle but without them, you start thinking of it as, as truly primitive. Well, and to underscore that point, a Mac developer writing an Objective-C doesn't necessarily need to do much more than just invoke, or they're intrinsically there, things like drop shadows and the animation effects, as long as they are relying on a core API. And the same is true for a lot of the physics and fancier stuff that developers are, are accessing today. That's true right up to the point that you try to do anything that Apple uh, has not completely thought of. So if the moment you try to uh, draw a new control or lay out text in your editor in which you do highlights in some way that Apple didn't think about, suddenly you need to do all of the graphical flourishes and you've got to up your game to every aspect of those to be as uh, as as good as the way Apple would have done it, or frankly Microsoft, because Windows 7 has uh, all that sort of uh, advanced technology in its graphical interfaces as well. And you you discover that you can't just plop some text down there and uh, draw a line under it or draw a stupid square box around it. That, that it aesthetically will look jarring compared to everything else. Nah, that's, a, that's a fair pushback. I'm sure in the same way that the really good iOS developers throw out everything and then fake it to make it look like it was all native because they, they're doing non-custom things. The, the game developers have the same issue where if you're really pushing the, the, the boundaries, you're, you're making your own path. So one thing I was thinking about in terms of, of how we relate to role-playing like games or, or world games was I was wondering whether or not there's an analog to the Uncanny Valley. When games, the Uncanny Valley being notion that I can do artwork, a- animation of something that people are familiar with, say the human face and eyes and so forth, and as long as I stay cartoony, it's fine, but if I get very close to photorealistic but miss it, everybody considers it creepy. But I was thinking about this in terms of the similarity for role-playing games would be things like the Morrowind games that are trying to build this world around you and that the villagers talk to you and they get more interested in you as you do heroic things and so forth. 
and then all of a sudden you do something and everybody decides they're against you. Unrealistically, instantly everybody knows. This is something you rant about periodically, Brian. And at, at, at what level, when, when people try and get very close to simulating world interactions and then miss, the, the, I wonder if those, those misses are even more dissonant than if you had stayed with more obviously gameplay-ish interactions. It also comes back to the fact that, that you know, good tools behave predictably, right? And that's why they're, they're good. It's a pleasure to interact with things that give responses that you can predict when you're trying to do something serious with them. These game systems are all fundamentally kind of rule sets that we learn how to work within, right? If I'm standing at the edge of this this type of balcony, I can jump down and land in a hay bale, and I know it's going to work. If some designer happens to put a hay bale under something and you can't get to it, it becomes extremely aggravating. I'm trying to, I'm sort of thinking of the example of, you know, they name the town after you. You are the most good character. You know, you're as far to the, the good side of the spectrum as you can get. And then you accidentally steal uh, a bag of chips from the convenience store and they run you out of the town with pitchforks. I think that's just the 24-hour cable news cycle. <laughs> Part of the aspect of what you're describing is, is this striving for an ideal and then not reaching it. Part of me wonders if, if that... The games that seem perfect and, and that seem like they succeed on, on every level seem to me to be the games who sort of choose their ideals to perfectly match their ability to execute on them. Mm. The, the idea of the totally immersive world really resists anyone's ability to, to reach it. it seems like perhaps eventually it will, will be reached, but unlike a game like Super Meat Boy, or the games that we were talking about that these like perfectly executed, beautiful, retro-y games. Something about the the immersive world is like it promises more than it than it delivers, but you sort of like need a few generations of people promising that same thing before someone can actually make the perfect version of that. <laughs> if you look at Rockstar and what they've done with the Grand Theft Auto franchise, I haven't played the most recent ones, but in my recollection, they had pretty realistic world with, I mean, with pretty realistic reactions with some huge glaring suspensions to disbelief you have to accept. And then you're okay. If you go and get a car wash or whatever it is you're supposed to do, all, all sins are forgiven. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you repaint your car. And you sort of accept the fact that you can pretty much rip anybody out of a car that you want. The, the game is pretty tight within those assumptions. If you've got a machine gun, people start freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, there, there are lots of sort of realistic interactions that are built within that system. Some of the art is just figuring out how to draw the boundaries for your players so that they they know what's on the, you know, what, what's game, what's fair game and what's off limits. Or, yeah, well, which is sort of moderating expectations. You want to sort of continually surprise the person, but not have them be surprised by having been led on that that you're going to deliver more than you can. (laughs) There's a purity of of game on one side of the spectrum. There's a fantastic story on the other side, and then there's this whole messy place in the middle where there's a narrative that lubricates the, the gameplay. On a different axis, there's how much something is a simulation versus a game. 
for uh, war games, for first-person shooters. Is, 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 is this thing going to, for your snipers, is it going to simulate wind speed and how much drop the bullet would have before you manage to hit your target? There are, there are people who care about that. Yeah, breathing and jitter through the scope and that kind of thing. I mean, right. They Usually they just simulate that by changing the reticle size. But in other cases, they, they try to turn it into more of a simulation or clearly things like flying a jet or flying even more, flying a helicopter. There's just no way any anybody picking up a video game is going to fly a helicopter very quickly. Everybody's just going to instantly flip it over and crash. But we want to make it fun, so we completely dumb down what the controls are and allow you to move it around like a hovercraft. I read about Flight Simulator and how they're a hobbyist that they have network connected. They have a whole network connected world where some people are air traffic controllers, other people are flying planes, and they they manage traffic and simulate radio conversations and the whole nine yards. Did you guys know about this? I did, I did not. not. That doesn't sound that fun, but I'm not in that world. There's a you know there's a lot of extremes that we get to with games that don't seem like a whole lot of fun. I mean, crossword puzzles and Scrabble are my favorite examples. This may lead into our conversation about Eve Online. I know you want to talk about Eve today. Speaking of not very fun. <laughs> You're just describing air traffic controllers and, and people playing roles that you wouldn't necessarily expect someone to to pick in a game that involves many different players. Reminds me of descriptions that I've read of, of, of Eve. Well, ever since I read about Cow Clicker, which is definitely another conversation, I, I have no... I am very cautious about underestimating people's ability to submit themselves to drudgery in the name of a game. I, I've certainly <laughs> been guilty of this. So so what do you guys have for, for Epic Mounts these days? Tom, what are you riding? Yipe. I'm, I'm riding a, a Greyhound Cerebus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even remember. What was, my, what was my favorite? I mean, I had the cat, and then I had... Uh, yeah, Paul had a bear. But uh, thinking about what to get, uh, Aaron and she was always fascinated with the uh, the frost saber mount from Winter Spring. That's a that's a big engagement. Not everybody's up for the the challenge. Not everybody has the time. Maybe you maybe you don't like cold weather. Or maybe you're allergic to frost giants, or there's some other extenuating circumstance that makes it more difficult for you. Well, I, I'm really glad that I was introduced to Honest Larry. And his operation, he's uh, he runs Honest Larry's Almost Purple Frost Sabers. So if you'd like a frost saber, but uh, you're not really willing to uh, sink the time and the expense to make it happen, you can get a uh, a nice epic cat in fuchsia or teal. Not quite purple, but purple-like, almost purple. From about uh, 20 feet away, you can you can really get people to do a second glance. It's kind of like when they uh, released all the the Hyundai's look like Jaguars. Were you still playing when um, Blizzard came up with the angelic horse mount with, with, with wings? No. It really was very pretty. I think it was a $25 mount, and I was not that interesting. But uh, very, very nice looking, and you know, all of your characters could use it. And what would Honest Larry sell you know, for someone who wasn't really ready to 
to pay that much for an angelic horse mount. He would sell you a Pegasus, <laughs> which is a, which is a, a winged boar. So <laughs> I did wrestle with Eve for a while. Mm-hmm. And I made Tom watch once, and I think he liked it. Really? I really like TIE Fighter, so I just, the whenever I see games that, that look like TIE Fighter, but better looking, I'm, I'm intrigued. Except the Honestly, user the interface looks like X Windows. It, it does. The UI seems like it was designed and and lives exclusively in in Linux or Unix. I was really glad that I played Eve for a while, because although the gameplay slash combat elements are not different from any other MMO, the other elements of the game were totally awesome. Like the fact that it is a true gerontocracy. The fact that your character progresses whether or not you're playing the game. And the fact that... As long uh, as you pay. As long as you pay. And the fact that, uh, you know, they have a model that seems pretty sound, which means, like, if you're good enough at the game, air quotes, you don't have to pay. You can actually or support yourself through economic activity. So uh, how, does, how does that work? But, so they have this thing called Plex. And you can buy a Plex for 15 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever the cost is and sell it on the open market for half a billion credits. Mm-hmm. And what that means is anybody that can make half a billion credits in a month can buy a month's worth of game time. And at the, the higher economic you know, scale, the I wouldn't even say one percenters, I think it's probably like the 20 percenters or the 30 percenters or whatever, they're making that much money pretty easy based on their activity. Mm-hmm. But... The there there were two things that turned me off of Eve. The first is the just kind of <laughs> aggressiveness of the UI, where there's nothing at all welcoming about the way that the game looks and feels. And fundamentally, it's one of those games where have you guys ever used one of these IDEs, like a graphical IDE or a, a 3D modeling tool, where you sort of realize that there are a lot of things that they just aren't keyboard shortcuts for. And so yeah. they just you have to go to your mouse and like click on the drop down and pick a one of the options and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's what flying the ship in Eve was like for me and maybe I'm just naive and I didn't understand it. But it's almost like the graphical interface for flying is superfluous except that you have to interact with it to fly. And I thought that was really weird. I think part of what I have liked about sort of space flight games in the past has been the when the, the control style feels natural or that you, you have a certain degree of, of, of control over it where you're sort of moving around in your seat as you're, you're taking corners or, or dodging things. And, and to my knowledge, there's no actual way to fly up any uh, by like pressing you know the, the W key or whatever. Like, you have to double-click somewhere in space or point yourself at a waypoint, and then you will go in that direction. That was very surprising. But it, it was almost like you, I sort of wished, you know, being a guy who travels and uses laptops and stuff, that I could just disable the graphical component of the game completely. But you just can't do that. You can't play the game that way. The other thing that was really frustrating to me was there was all this richness and all this economic activity and all this stuff. But the people that were really engaged in the game, they were active in the game, seemed to be doing it like the healthiest attitude in Eve seemed to be you play so that you can PvP 
all your economic activity is there to subsidize, like, buying ships that you can then go and fight with other people for. Which sounds fun. Which sounds kind of fun. In a game where, if, if it's an open universe where people of different levels aren't restricted from going different places, it seems like that, that, that could be hostile to, towards newcomers. <laughs> well, there's a whole there's a whole kiddie pool area in the game. Mm-hmm. But, well, Tom, you, know, you remember the first time we engaged in PvP on Dark Iron? It was shocking. I mean, our, our hearts were beating... You know, adrenaline. It was. It was. I think we had the this. I had the same amount of like like positive, healthy stress reaction. Like the first couple times I played Counter Strike or something. Like just the the knowledge that you're playing against real people. That there's another person on the end of a computer somewhere that you're trying to shoot or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like it was. I don't know if you ever experienced this in like an MMO or another game, but like it was really. I guess stimulating is a word I could use in, in a really interesting way. It, yeah, it was, I mean, it, yes, it was interesting also because, of course, you still have the main game. You're, you're still trying to progress through the game yourself, but this added on. So it's not just capture the flag, we're doing PvP. And it's not just griefing people, although for some folks that's that's how they... Well, but what, that, that's what, not what our first experiences were like. We were just sort of walking along, like maybe two or three of us, and like, hey, there's a guy. Like, do we want to try to kill him? We could try to kill him. Right. Like, Or, you know, maybe he's going to come and get us. And that was that was really interesting the first couple times it happened. I mean, then there was a time I was going to take a you know 12-hour flight or whatever, and I was sitting in an airport lounge and, you know, getting get ready to, to dock my character at an inn, and I got ganked, uh, killed, you know, by surprise at the last minute. And there was no way I could get back to, you know, a resting place in time before I, you know, and catch my flight. And so I just had to sort of shut the laptop and walk away. And <laughs> that is also what PvP is all about. <laughs> you know, as, as I, th- I think it was Tobal's, maybe he wasn't the first person that said it, but I think it was the first place I read it, in in a PvP-type environment, no rational person engages in a fair fight. Yes. Why, why would you do that? And so, as wonderful as it is to like be able to flatten that obnoxious guy in the other faction that's, that's annoying you, it just often doesn't work out that way. And the thing about Eve is, first of all, like when you read the guides and stuff like that, they say, like, if you're in a sector and somebody else shows up, like the right thing to do if you're not a great player is just leave, because like they will kill you. <laughs> like you just have to assume that the only reason they're there is to kill you. And so that sort of deep-seated pervasive paranoia doesn't necessarily contribute to happy fun time for me. I think this is an area where there are like big classes where where there's sort of the class of game like Counter Strike or Halo where you know there's differences in skill level and knowledge, but it's like reset in between rounds and then like pvp games like you're describing eve or or like wow can be where you really have like a huge advantage if you've played longer or spent more time just like developing your your like in-game abilities you can leave a a server in counter-strike or whatever tribes or whatever and like join another one you know odds are you might get in a place where you actually have a more of a fighting chance right um, especially games that have more sophisticated ranking systems will take care of this for you. 
But in an MMO or something, yeah, you can just <laughs> the you know WoW is famous for having this whole subculture around like level 19, which is a, a relatively low level, and level 29 PVP circuits. Yeah. Where <laughs> the the players have taken min maxing, like trying to optimize the characters to their absolute ridiculous extremes, where they're spending more money on a level 19 character than most serious players would spend on a level capped character. Yeah, so you could be the the the, the top of, of that particular uh, swimming pool. Yeah. In my uh, my short WoW career, I spent a lot of time at, at level 29. Well, you know, see, we thought we were going to do that, and we mm. got our little characters ready, and then we realized we were the suckers at the table. Because even with our what we thought were preparations, we were still just shark bait, both because our skill wasn't there and there were still orders of magnitude better equipment on the guys that were, that were fighting us. You know, when it comes to Eve, and I'm sorry I'm monologuing here on all this, you can also, like, when you get your dream ship, you don't want to take it out. <laughs> because there are... Griefing is not discouraged in any way, shape, or form. It's, it's sort of considered a part of the game and, like, don't be a sissy mm-hmm. uh, kind, of, kind of a thing. And there are very nice people in the game, very helpful people in the game, but there's also this this class of people that make it their, it, it's a hobby. Like when somebody's flying, for example, a unique ship, like they'll sacrifice a pretty valuable ship just to just to, just to to kill it. And even in, air quotes, safe space, you can be killed. The trade-off is their ship will also be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes this balancing act of, like, how much money do I have to spend to destroy your ship? All this sounds perverse, but it still hasn't convinced me that I don't want to play it. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of felt the same way too, and then I played it for a while. And first of all, like I, I couldn't get my friends that interested. And second of all, I just never got to the point where I really felt like I wanted to throw in with PvP and like engage in that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't clear to me that it was something that. First, I'm way behind. People have been playing this game for a long time. And second of all, it is a, a true MMO life and energy drain. And I'm just not sure that I want to do that. I think I, I need to play the trial period and actually experience the unpleasantness before I'm, uh, I'm convinced. But it is a beautiful game. There are a lot of really wonderful design decisions they've made. And if you played a couple WoW-like MMOs, some of the decisions they've made about the way the game is put together is so refreshing, even though the actual combat elements aren't different at all. Yeah, it, it looks very pretty. That's, that, that's for certain. Well, it also has the whole sins thing of, like, gorgeous ships and gorgeous explosions and all that crap. And they, they do some really sophisticated things with server lag. Like, they actually slow down the heartbeat of a server when enough activity gets going. So that no, nothing is lost. It doesn't glitch your leg out. It just <coughs> seconds take longer. Eve allows for epic combat and epic things, and the whole friggin' story is driven by the players. And so if you start reading, like, the blogs and stuff, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how engaged people are. You just have to dedicate the time to, uh, to make yourself epic. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you can do really well. They actually allow you to get paid in game money 
for things like being an accountant for a guild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like managing the books or like designing a website for a guild. You can get paid in game money for that. They, they, they've carved out a number of sort of legitimate things, like services you can provide where it's okay for people to pay you game money for real-life services rendered or in-game services rendered. Again, some very, very thoughtful things they've done. So I, I respect what they've done. I'm just not sure it's for me. Anything else you guys want to talk about? I think we... I, I want to dot, 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 and then pick back up after I've played a little bit. Okay, sounds good. Well, thanks for joining, guys. Have a good uh, have a good night. Yeah. All right, thanks a lot. Yeah, good talking to you guys. Bye.